James chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. He says, Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Um, sent, I sent uh, Matt just a snapshot of the first part of my outline yesterday. Uh, and he said, do you think all that, something along the lines of, do you think that's all connected or is it just you know, a bunch of different points that he's trying to make. And I told Matt, and I'll tell all of you, I think practically speaking, what happens is as James is running out of room to write, he squeezes as many of his final points in as he possibly can. So you get this staccato, rapid fire, point to point to point to point, but they're not disconnected, and I'll try to demonstrate that as we go along this morning. There's six things that will, Lord willing, we will cover. Number one, don't be dishonest. Pretty simple, pretty straight ahead. If you're not dishonest, you don't have to make promises and keep oaths or make oaths and keep promises. You just let your yes be yes and your no be no. When you're suffering, pray. When you're cheerful, praise. When you're sick, call the elders. When you confess, you will find healing. And then finally, God is interested in you, not your words. Um, that one, obviously, I have to draw out of the text a, a little more deftly because it's not right there. Verse 12 says, don't lie, right? Above all, brothers, don't swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. That means don't lie. If you let your yes be no and your no be yes, that's being deceitful, right? And then certainly, if, if you're going to lie, never invoke God to cover your lie. Acts chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. It's a familiar passage, and if it's not one you've ever had the benefit of studying um, or hearing somebody preach, uh, a lot of ink has been spilled over the story that occurs in the beginning of Acts 5, and I don't agree with most of it. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And basically they were in cahoots together to keep back some of the proceeds of this property, um, but, but then give the appearance that they had brought it all to give to the church. Right? So they made this plan and they came. Look, we sold our property. Here's all the money that we made. Now you do that because you want to appear more magnanimous and philanthropic than you actually are, right? That's lying. That's hypocrisy and deceitfulness. Here's what Peter says in verse 3. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? 
while it remained unsold, did not did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. Worth noting, for, I won't, I'm not going to preach Acts 5, but it's worth noting. When we sin, especially when we lie, we have to depend on God sustaining us with breath in order to sin against him. So it's quite striking and shocking that Ananias finishes lying and falls down dead as soon as Peter pronounces that he had sinned. But it's worth us considering Every time we sin, and especially with our mouths, we did it with breath on loan from the Creator. And He, because He is gracious and kind, sustained us as we were doing it. How many of us would have fallen down dead at oh, two and a half or three if lying was all it took? You're not supposed to laugh at that, Vern or Vic or whoever that was. You're supposed to be afraid. Uh, not really. Uh, well, but kind of. But not here to terrify people. Uh, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes. So I'm assuming Peter suggested to her that they had sold it for the amount that Ananias, her husband, said they had sold it for. And she says, yes. Peter said, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. A great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Don't lie. And certainly never invoke the name of God to cover your lie. Amen? Or some spiritual pretense to cover your lie. Uh, honesty involves very little creativity. Right? This is kind of a good test for whether or not you're being truthful. How creative are you having to be in the midst of it? When you get good at not lying, you can begin to learn how to then tell the truth. And I do think there's a difference between the two. I'm getting better at not lying. I have yet to accomplish speaking the truth in perfect faithfulness without inserting myself into it. There's no reason to emphasize the truth if you traffic in it. You don't have to be like, yeah, but right now, it's, you are either someone who's honest or you're not. So don't lie. We should just tell one another yes or no and be done with it. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Suffering and sorrow should produce prayer. But it doesn't. How long do you typically suffer before you pray? How, how much sorrow do you endure before you pray? So if, uh, if I try to remember the first time I almost died while mowing the lawn, it would have been at least seven or eight years ago. So I wasn't super young, but I, neither was I old. I'm still not. I just look like I am. Um, <clears throat> but I was out mowing. It was the old house. So we had a hill. The backyard was just a hill that 
felt like about a 20 degree incline, but it was probably like three or four, but it was a lot. And if you're like me, you mow the grass one way one week, another way the next week, and then diagonally on weeks in between. And so it was the week where I had to go up and down the hill. And man, my heart was pounding in my ears and I was roasting hot and could not get cooled off. And finally, finally, after about half of it, I stopped and took a break and my mouth was all dried out and I got some water and drank it. And I remember thinking then that it was very stupid of me to continue in the exercise of mowing when I could have at any moment stopped and gotten a drink of water and rested, right? Well, that popped into my head as I was thinking about this message this week, and I thought, you know what praying when you were in sorrow and suffering is like? It's not dissimilar from sweating when you're hot, because I really do think complaining in a holy way, in a, in a right way, pouring out your heart to God, it cools the heart as you're praying. It's like you're perspiring to relieve whatever the sorrows and struggles that you have are. But what we do, generally speaking, when we're on the struggle bus is instead of getting off of it by spending time in prayer is we invoke all kinds of human machinations to try to alleviate, try to alleviate the suffering and the struggle. When God is saying right here, hey, is anybody suffering? Let him pray. Just start there. Just do that first. Does that make sense? Is anyone cheerful? What should we do if we're cheerful? It's right there. It's in verse 13. You're looking at me like, I don't know. Why are you? Verse 13. Is anyone cheerful? Let him praise. Let him sing. Cheerfulness should produce praise. So what I'm saying is uh, suffering should produce prayerfulness. Then cheerfulness should produce praising or the worship of God and I think the alternative either way if I'm not going to pray when I'm struggling or I'm not going to praise when things are going well the alternative is idolatry the alternative is I will invest myself in something inferior to God but you see this especially when you're up when you're cheerful you see it especially the the the, the charge is to praise if you're not praising God when you're cheerful and excited and encouraged about whatever's going on, you have missed the point of the good that you're experiencing. All good things come from heaven, from down, according to chapter one, the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, right? So God gives you something good richly to enjoy, and what we're supposed to do is then turn that about into praise to him. But often what we do is fixate on the thing or the situation or the person who God has used to bring us this joy. This is idolatry. If we receive a kindness from God, some unexpected bounty, some great enjoyment, some surprising relief to affliction, for instance, and we don't praise him, take it to the bank. What you're going to do is make an idol out of the thing that brought you the joy. When our affections terminate on the object or on the blessing that God has given us rather than the God who gave it to us, when our affections terminate on the stake instead of God who provided us with it or whatever, if you're into the... Uh, uh, like grace, what are you, donuts, cookies, I don't know, 
You don't eat meat. So, but if your affections terminate on the thing that you enjoy instead of on God, you begin to then corrupt your own feelings about it. So what, 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 the way you know this is true is because all of us, not unlike a drug addict, all of us have had some encounter with something that we liked the way it made us feel, right? Come on. Everybody in here has had that experience. And I'm not saying evil, just something where you're like, afterwards you're like, oh, that was really great. I really enjoyed that. And so then you want to feel that way again. So you go back to that thing and it's never quite as potent the second time around. Right? It doesn't have to be heroin, folks. It can be the most innocent, benign, morally neutral enjoyment you've ever encountered. The, the issue here is you didn't, magnify the one who gave you the gift. So let me illustrate this point. We went camping uh, like five years ago, maybe six years ago now in April, early April. It was uh, uh, my family and the Perrys. And we're like, we're going to schedule it in February. We're going to plan it all out. It's going to be great. And we didn't go. For, we just went to Mahoney, right? As you do when you live in Omaha. Uh, we had a great little tent campsite. We got one with the electricity, uh, so we keep our devices charged because peace, it's camping. We're not trying to. <laughs> Everything was wonderful. The steak, wood-fired, was incredible. Maybe the best steak I've ever had in my life. Not to brag, but I also seasoned and cooked it. So, uh, The dogs, we had, at that point, we had our, like, I don't know, two, three-year-old Akita uh, named Tucker that we had adopted from Midlands Humane Society. Uh, best looking dog I've ever owned. Um, unfortunately, likes to eat small dogs, so we had to get rid of him. But he was there, and then the Perrys brought Scout, who's their maniacal golden retriever uh, German Shepherd mix, and the two dogs just loved each other. We could not have asked for it to go better. They laid together and just gnawed one another's faces, looked like two high school kids. You know what I mean? <laughs> They were having a really good time. Our kids went off exploring, like doing the thing you're supposed to do in the woods when you're young. It was all perfect. It was all great. And then we went to bed. And it was as though winter had never stopped because the temperature went from a 70, whatever it was, to when I finally gave up on trying to sleep at about 4.50 that morning. It was 15 degrees, according to my phone. And so I, finally, I'm just like, I got to get up. And I got up, and I went out and, and started stoking the fire and getting it hot so that as other people gave up on sleeping and came out, there would be coffee and there would be heat, right? Um, not praising God when you're in the midst of an enjoyment is the exact same thing. It's going to bed on the high of this experience and then waking up in the frigid cold of having not stoked the flames of your heart through worship. If you would just praise him, you'd stay warm. But we don't. Camping in early April, it starts out fun, but it don't end that way. Um, verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Sickness, and here the word, I mean, technically it's like weakness, feebleness, but disease is certainly in view. Sickness, somebody better agree with me on this or I might have to quit. Sickness tends to lead to reflection, right? 
You get sick, you kind of like, I don't know. I, when my flesh fails me, I'm suddenly very cognizant and or at least I'm very much reminded of how dependent I am on God's sustaining grace. It's remarkable how in a flash, uh, audacity and self-sufficiency flee from me with haste when I get sick. When I was well, I thought quite highly of myself. Right? Now, now I'm ill and I'm discovering clarity. Reality comes into focus in dramatic fashion when I'm weak. This is a normal human experience. When our bodies fail, we tend to consider how our morals have also failed. We tend to consider how we've neglected the means of grace and we tend to wonder how long we've been ignoring our own consciences. What happens then is in the midst of sickness, there's reflection and so then on top of sickness, as if that weren't bad enough, we will often fall into profound sorrow. Because let me be even more miserable than just I can't breathe out of my face holes. I'm going to sit and consider what an awful Christian I am. Okay, it's fine. Leave me up here. Here's what I think is going on. I think it's not uncommon for illness, weakness, and depression to come after a sustained period of the aforementioned spiritual coldness. The most dramatic way I ever experienced this was I was, uh, so it was right after probably Sam's birthday because I know it was wintertime and I had bought one of those helium balloon kits so we could make a bunch of helium balloons in the house. And then I did what you're supposed to do as a young dad of young kids, and that is you suck the helium right out of the tank and entertain the kids by doing so. But I developed a nagging cough in the midst of sucking the helium out of the tank, which I attributed to, you know, I was like, it's probably like Asian helium or something. And it's not well regulated or whatever. But the reality was I was developing H1N1 swine flu. Right as the birthday party was ending, it was just a family thing, and I'm sucking helium out. It starts with this cough. Twelve hours later, I am, it, all of it is happening. And I would never forget thinking, man, I went from the heights of enjoyment to the depths of despair. Pounding, headache, couldn't keep any food or water down, just miserable hacking. It was awful. Sometimes moments of profound sorrow and depression and illness and weakness come right after some aforementioned spiritual coldness. And I think what's going on is when God's kindnesses do not draw us to worship, his chastisements will drive us to worship, to repentance. Look at Psalm 32, verse 3. I'll give you just a minute to get there. Psalm 32, verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, and he's talking about his Father in heaven. Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, 
I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Earlier in verse 13 uh, in James 5, we noted that if anyone is suffering, that he should pray. And now we come, I think, to the substance of those prayers. Without a doubt, when we're sick, if some unconfessed sin comes to mind, we need to be quick to pray a prayer of confession. Amen? Yeah, you're sick. God's got you in that pool of reflection and you look and go, oh yeah, I did that. I remember that. Well, confess it with your mouth to him. Everyone in this room who, is, who has found physical relief, physical relief from the confession of sin from a tormented heart should say, amen. Confess with your mouth. Yeah. James also says we should call the elders of the church. <sighs> Two practical considerations, okay? And this is not me trying to weasel out of my responsibility. First, if you need antibiotics, I would encourage you to call your doctor as well. Okay? I'm not, like, James's prescription is in no way intended to replace the attendance of a good physician. And for those of you who so mistrust the medical system after the last few years that you're reticent to even do that, listen to me. Paul loved having Luke along with him because Luke was his physician. And when Paul wasn't busy being stoned literally to death and, I mean, or beaten with, like, he had a thorn in the flesh. The guy didn't have a day where he woke up and sprung out of bed and was feeling great. He needed a physician. Sometimes so do we. Thank God medicine's come a little further than it had in Luke's time. Second, please bear in mind that your elders, all five of them, are tent makers by day. We are husbands, fathers, grandfathers in the afternoon and evening. And we got to sleep at some point. I mean, if you're going to sneeze, do it with that kind of enthusiasm. I appreciate that. There's none of this blowing your esophagus out trying to hide it. I, I admire it. So bear in mind, if you call us, we're, we're going to have to leave some other task unattended. And that's okay, because it may be more important that we come and see to you in your illness and suffering. But make sure, okay? You know, I'm, I'm just putting it in your lap. Are you sure you need a... If you've got a cold or a headache... Maybe it rises to the occasion for an eldership visit. I don't know. But try this first. Just shoot me a text and know that I'm praying for you if you've got a cold or a headache. But if you are sick unto the point where you're losing hope that you're going to recover and you reach out, like, we'll come. We'll come. Cecil, Lee, Matt, myself, Rick, we'll come. Well, not, maybe not all of us depending on how bad it is, but you've got four limbs and a head, so I would say five would be a good. If you're gravely ill, we'll stop what we're doing and come and support you. Verse 14 also mentions anointing with oil. There's only one other place in the scriptures that speaks of using oil in the healing and curing of diseases, and that is Mark 6, 13. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. And you're like, what? There's all kinds of mentions of the use of oil in scriptures. Not to heal. 
Not, not as a healing element. It, they're really not. Among the Jews, oil was a, um, how do I put this? It was a common symbol of divine grace. So it was, it was appropriate in, in Jewish culture to use it as a sign of the Spirit's power revealed through the healing of a, a person who was sick, usually in a miraculous way. It was an extraordinary sign for an extraordinary thing. Does that make sense? Um, Eretius thought that the apostle meant some kind of medicinal oil. So I'm not like, and then Wycliffe thought the same thing, that it must have been, but I'm not going to come and anoint you with neosporin. If, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it the right way. I, I think that's a mistake. The oil was not used as an instrument. It was used as a symbol. So there's no healing. Like I always, whenever we're doing baptisms, I say, hey, there's nothing magic about this water. It, you're not going to emerge from the waters less sinful than you went under them. It's, it's, a, it's a symbolic thing that we do because we're commanded to. In the same way, I would point out that oil was not used as an instrument, but as a symbol of its cure. None of the apostles healed with oil. None of them. They used handkerchiefs. They used their shadows. They used touch. They used their words. But not a one of them ever used oil in the scriptural account. Our Reformed brothers would say the use of oil in anointing the sick has ceased because the apostolic gifts of uh, healing and the miraculous gifts have ceased. I, I, to, like, to a certain extent, I would agree with that. If you're expecting the oil to be the proof that God will heal, then you'd better, like stop using it now. Because none of us can make that claim. None of us can say, I am absolutely certain you're going to be healed. And that proves it. No way. No way. I, I'm probably a little bit too charismatic, though. Should we abandon the practice since we believe the apostolic gifts accomplish their purpose and no longer exist? The sign gifts, speaking in tongues, healing by the laying on of hands, prophesying. I think if we're going to abandon the practice of anointing with oil, we should also abandon the practice of laying hands on one another when we pray, since the Holy Spirit is no longer conferred that way, if he ever was. And I don't think he was. I think it was symbolic. Personally, like I said, Southern Baptists are here on the charismatic scale. Reformed Baptists would be here. And then the Pentecostals would be up where the lights are. I'm somewhere between here and the lights. I do not believe that any human being is endowed with the miraculous gifts and is able to apply them at their leisure and pleasure. I do believe God still heals people in miraculous ways. And I've been known, I know some of you are going to leave the church over this, I have been known to pray and ask God to heal people without adding the caveat, if it be your will. In fact, I've been known to refuse to add that when I ask God to heal somebody because I think God's going to do whatever is in his will without me giving him permission to. 
And what I want him to hear is the broken heart of one of his kids crying out for one of his other kids. I don't know your plans, God, but I know this. You'll be more glorified by this brother or sister rising from this illness than you'll be, from my perspective, by their death. So that's how I pray. I've been known to be deeply disappointed when he doesn't heal the ones that I've prayed for because I honestly believed that he would. And I don't view that disappointment as a sign of judgment against me. I view it as a sign that my Father in heaven knows better than me what's needed. I want to see incredible works of God continue in my own life, and I want to see it in all of yours. I really do, but not for one second do I believe that God will be compelled by the use of or the lack of oil in my praying for your healing. The design would be to symbolize that prayers of intercession and requests for healing have been made. Here's what I think. I think, it, for what it's worth, I went ahead and I, I indentured Lisa to find and order for me the specific ingredients that I think should be in the anointing oil. All right, so those have been ordered. I don't have them yet because I've never done this because I've always repressed the instinct. But if going forward you want to be anointed because you're sick and you've called me to come, like I'm not going to do it unless you ask me to, okay? But the idea is after I'm gone, you ought to be able to smell that I was there. Because if you're anything like me, what happens is the moment of worship is profound and has a deep impact. Think summer camp. This is going to change my life forever. A week later, not so much. So a sign, a reminder, a symbol that this event occurred. They did come. They did pray for me. I can still smell the frankincense. Maybe that encourages your heart just a little bit more. So if I come and pray for you and you want to be anointed, I'll be thrilled to anoint you. Let me know if you have a myrrh or uh, casea oil or cinnamon or frankincense allergy, though. Also, I refuse to buy the ones that are prepackaged. I just feel like I have to make it myself for the magic to be there. <laughs> Verse 14. That was a joke. Please, okay? Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The, the healing power, if it's not in the oil and it's not in the prayer, where is it? Yeah, I mean, he says it. So Luke 5, 17 says this. On one of those days, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. They were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Uh, sometimes you've got to go around some Pharisees to get to Jesus. Amen? Especially if you want that healing power. You gotta get around those religious elites and then show them something that'll change their lives. My Jesus can heal a paralytic. Just, he needed some friends to get there. They let him down in the midst of the tiles. I'm sorry, 
through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, who is just to speak back by faith? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he said to them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise and walk. But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up, picked up what he'd been laying on and went home glorifying God. Listen, in order to show everyone that he was capable of doing the harder thing, Jesus went ahead and did the easier thing too. In order to demonstrate that he had the ability, the authority, the power, and was in the process of purchasing the rights to forgive sins, he went ahead and told the paralytic to get up and walk. Which of those two things is harder for Jesus? Which of those two things is easier? Let that marinate in your mind for just a moment. What's harder? Forgiving sins or healing someone's spine? Oh, he said, in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise and walk. That was easy. What have we seen here in James 5 this morning? Now, I had to strike a balance as I was preparing this message. The balance worked like this. I had to keep things just disjointed and disconnected enough that you would all be guilty of what I'm about to accuse you of by the time I got to this point in my sermon. But it's a bit manipulative, so I'm just confessing it. Five, five things... Six things? Was it six that I told you? Yeah, I said six things. So we've been through five of them. Here are the first four. Don't be dishonest and you don't need to make promises and oaths. When you're suffering, pray. When you're cheerful, praise God. And fourth, when you're sick, call the elders. And most of us have had the audacity to sit here and be bored thinking about work, school, TikTok, someone hot, food, ourselves, the kids, video games, the future movies, our failing bodies, the past, an ex, the dog, the beach, the mountains, summer, Christmas, global warming, or sit here staring at our phones like any of that's important. Look right at me. How did any of us even make it past don't be a liar? I mean the gall for us to be like, yes, keep going, pastor. I'm including myself, so don't feel like the cannons are all pointed that way. Don't swear by heaven, earth, or any other thing. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. You don't do that. You don't do that. You don't lie a little bit either. You're a liar. You're getting defensive right now and you need to stop because think about it this way. Nobody has lied to you more than you have lied to you. 
Just let your yes be yes. Let, let your no be no. Come on, it's not that hard, right? Just be honest with yourself. How did you make it past when you are suffering? Pray. How did any of us get past that? All right, so we hurdled, don't be a liar. And then we came to when you're suffering, pray. And we're like, got it. No, we don't. What, you, when you're suffering, you take ibuprofen. You don't pray. And three or four people in here are like, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Well, good for you. The rest of us don't. How did you make it past when you're cheerful, praise God? You don't do that. Most of us worship the temporal source of our joy, not the one who gave it to us. Most of us. With exceptions. James, I think, is poking on as quickly as he can at the end of his letter. He's poking on all the pressure points to get us to the most important thing. So the second, kind of maybe the last third of 15, I'm going to rephrase this a little bit. So just listen to me. Prayers of faith in the name of the Lord will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Look, we... We need forgiveness, and that is way harder to accomplish than physical health. Way harder. What does it even mean to be saved, raised, and forgiven? Because if you get all the way to the end of this passage and go, oh, the Prayers of a righteous person are powerful as they're working. You should be even more hopeless because of what that verse says. Unless you're one of these that's like, that's right, I'm righteous. Which is fine as long as you're also one of these that goes, but only because Jesus has given me his righteousness and taken my sin and nailed it to the cross so I don't bear it anymore. You can be righteous that way. But then what do your prayers sound like? What do your prayers sound like when you're saved, raised, and forgiven? It means, it means you pray like you're in vital relationship with Jesus Christ, right? Big difference between being right about all of the things that you need to be right about at work and at school and being in relationship with Jesus Christ, walking in fellowship with your Father who is in heaven. Huge difference. Big difference between being an expert at whatever you're really into, your hobbies and your pursuits, and being right with Jesus Christ and, and walking in fellowship with your heavenly Father. Huge difference, right? I was talking to somebody before church this morning, having that classic moment where you're like, man, the weekend, like, I'm glad I'm here because it's Sunday, but the, just like the weekend's almost over. And I got to go tomorrow and do that, Right? Hold on. Do that tomorrow, whatever you're going to do, do that in vital relationship with Jesus Christ, walking in fellowship with God the Father, and maybe that will be a little bit less mundane and trivial and less of a waste of time because you're going to go into that, whatever it is for you, saved, raised, and healed of the guilt of your sin 
restored in fellowship with God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't command us to engage in great acts to display our faith. Instead, he simply calls us to confess our sins. And guess what? Just like everything else God tells us to do, he tells us to do this for our good. God's like, you need to confess your sins. And I'm like, I don't want to. And God's saying, you have to. It's for your own heart. And you know, you all know, because we've all experienced it if you're in Christ, the moment you finally crack and that shell comes off and you go, Father, I've sinned against you. Right away, healing. Right away, the balm of Gilead is applied. Right away, you're back in sweet fellowship with the one who saved you from your sin to begin with. He makes you confess because he knows you need to. It's for your good. And the weird thing is here, he says, confess your sins to one another. So, next Sunday, we're going to have a confessional booth installed up here. No, it's a misunderstanding at best and a perversion at worst to think that what that means is that there's a prescriptive way we should be confessing our sins to one another in order to really get forgiveness from God. Look, you cannot, this is I think what he's saying, you cannot walk in disunity with your brothers and sisters while walking in harmony with your Father who's in heaven. Okay, so if you confess your sins to God and he's faithful and just to cleanse you and forgive you for all unrighteousness and then you turn around and have a miserly spirit towards your brother and sister who's also been saved, something doesn't smell right. So there needs to be confession this way too. We have to restore relationships by talking to one another and being honest with one another and letting our yes be yes and our no be no. Amen. Then when you are in sorrow, you pray for one another. And when you're cheerful, we can praise together. One of my favorite things that we do here at Springfield Baptist is take Lord's Supper. And uh, it's a small group a couple of weeks ago. We covered the topic of why we do it. Why do we do it the way that we do it? And if you miss that, you'll just never know. Um, but the, uh, the thing that blew my mind that, that I did not expect that came up during our discussion was why... Why don't we do it every week? And I was like, ah, it's just tough. You know, it's a big lift. There's a lot going on. We're borrowing the space, yada, yada, yada. And the response to that was just like another 10 minutes. How big of a lift could it be? Nobody said, oh, could we just maybe do it every other month? Everybody was like, we should do it every week. A lot of you are like, I need to start going to small group. Get my opinion out there. For now, we're going to keep doing it once a month. But I was blessed to hear that you all are blessed by this too. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have you stand once the music is going. Actually, you could sit there. You could sit there for 15 minutes if you want to and consider what it means to walk in fellowship with God and what needs to happen in your heart for you to be able to do that. Once you are ready, there will be some music going to cover the shuffling of feet and the breathing. Come up, take the elements if you are a believer, if you're in Christ and want to remember him, take the elements, preferably with your family unit. If you don't have a family unit here, come be with mine. Or um, uh, Lee, you raise your hand. Cecil, raise your hand. Like hold them up so everybody can see you. 
Uh, Matt, raise your hand. Thank you. You can go with one of them or just find somebody. Just get with a family in your row and go with them and take Lord's Supper together. What needs to happen is this. We need to thank God for the, um, the bruising of Christ's body, which was to pay the price for the evil that we've done. We need to bless God for the shedding of his blood, which cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And then we need to... Uh, take advantage of the privilege of this moment wherein we are knitted in fellowship together with God. And we can leave this place remembering all that Christ has done for us and restored in our communion with him. Amen. Um, let me pray and, and then I'll, I'll turn on some music. We can get started. You do not have to be in a rush. <clears throat> Father, we thank you so much for this time in your word. We acknowledge, we recognize that um, probably I have said things that didn't need to be said. Probably I have left things out that did need to be said because I am a man and uh, I'm fallible. So here's what I would ask. I would ask that you would take this message and uh, ring out of it every ounce of truth into the hearts and minds of all of us here and discard from it all of the nonsense that doesn't matter and isn't helpful. For these next few minutes, as we seek to obey you in the observation of communion, Holy Spirit, would you be in this room? Would you move in our hearts so that this is not an overly emotional moment, but certainly is an emotional time where we're reminded of the profound depth of the love which you poured out on all of your children. We ask for these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen.